welcome to the World Expose podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined by Andrena Itriago. She is a political journalist in Venezuela and a correspondent for El Tiempo, amongst many others. She's also a professor of journalism at UCAB University in Caracas, Venezuela. Ms. Ipiriago, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Laman, for letting me join you today. Venezuela is experiencing one of the worst economic and political catastrophes in history. Inflation since 2018 is over 10 million percent. 90% of the population face starvation, and 5 million people have fled the country in a refugee crisis that is expected to surpass the Syrian refugee crisis. Venezuela was once the richest nation in South America with one of the most stable democracies. Could you tell us what led to the catastrophe and did it all start with former socialist president Hugo Chavez? Well, yeah, we've been in the last 20 years since Hugo Chavez arrived uh, to the power. He was elected, uh, obviously, by popular elections. He did earn his presidency. I mean, he did earn the votes to get to the government. So when he arrived to the government, that was in December 1998. So when he got to the power, everything just began coming down. No? And when Maduro, I think it was not that obvious up until 2013, when Maduro had to take the power after Chavez died in March, allegedly in March 2013. Well, then he came. And when he arrived, this was just a... Imagine like a castle or something and it just collapsed, you know, everything, economy, education, healthcare, everything just came down. So when you go to the hospitals and when you go to communities and when you talk to people and ask them when did their problems begin, they don't get back that much until Chavez era. They say this began to get critical with Maduro. And that means from 2013 until now. But obviously, it was not just Maduro's government who did this. It's obvious that during Chavez era, and those years he was governing the country, he didn't make the things he needed to do. And he made, like, in economy, for example, he, he made all these policies that nowadays we are paying the consequences of them, you know? So, yeah, I, I think... Before, Venezuelans didn't even talk about politics, you know, you didn't even care who was governing you. So now when Chavez arrived, now it became like an issue of interest to everyone in the country. So the previous governments were also very criticized. Like they said, for example, that they forget about the poor, like the poor people, you know, Latin American countries, you have like a very small piece of the population who has money and access to money and can live well, but you have like a very big percentage of the population who is really poor and starving, as you were saying. So what happened in the, in the previous governments was that these poor people wasn't taken into consideration. So that was what led Chavez to get the government, you know? So basically you cannot say this is all obviously Maduro's and Chavez's fault. I mean, this is like a series of things that have happened one after the other, and it's really complex. This is a very complex country, and it's hard to understand it, and it's also hard to explain it. And Hugo Chavez, when he came into power in, in 98, did you say? 1998. 
he implemented a socialist regime which worked for over 15 years because of high oil prices. And of course, Venezuela is a a huge oil producer. So is that one of the main reasons in Maduro's regime working up until his death in 2013, then Maduro comes into power and oil prices rocket and oil? Yes and no. (laughs) I mean, you're you're right. Like, obviously we have that. It's a blessing and it's also a curse to be an oil producing country. And we used to be, we, we have one of the biggest reserves of oil in the world. And we used to be like producers of lots and tons of oils. And we even had the chance to export that oil. Not only did we get to satisfy all of our demand in gasoline, for example, but we were able to send gasoline to other countries of the world. Nowadays, I don't know if you've read about, about it in the news, but we don't even have gasoline. And we're paying the highest amount of money per liter. We pay, just for you to have an idea, I just paid like last weekend $2.5 of gasoline. That makes only to half a tank. I had to spend $50 just to put half of the tank of my car. So this is making Venezuela's oil, gasoline to be the most expensive in the whole world. Because we even pay, there are some places where they're paying even $7. And that means $7 per each liter. What happened was that obviously we were like too comfortable with these high prices. And the thing was that they, I don't know a nice way to say this, but they steal everything. I mean, all of the money they made from oil producing, and we are very rich, not only in oil. We have also gold, as you might have heard, coltan as well, which is very important in this industry, like mobile phone industry. We have like many, many resources. I mean, all of the money, what they did was that they steal it. And where is all of the money that Venezuela should have had? So obviously, when oil prices drop, obviously this impacts an economy which is basically based on oil exportation, production and exportations. But it's not the only thing. That's why I'm saying that this is a very complex country. It's not like sanctions, U.S. sanctions, because it's almost the same. That's what the government says to take the guilt up, because they say, no, oil prices went down, so... We have no income, so that's why this situation is like this. No, that's not true. As well as it ain't ain't true that the U.S. sanctions are the ones that are making people starve here because previously sanctions were not like specified to companies as they are now, to PDVSA, the oil-producing company, the state's company. They were like only to specific people with name and less name. So... That didn't affect the country. That obviously affects their interests. So this is a very complex economy as well. This is a, an economy that has shrunk in, in the past seven years and it has lost lots of their of its points. And it is, it is expected, obviously. We've been in hyperinflation since November 2017, but we were expected to come out of it this year. Like experts were really like, they had these hopes at the beginning of the year that we might come out of it this year. We still have like this high inflation, but not high for inflation. But then COVID came and things just came down way worse. You know, coronavirus, the pandemic virus, it's obviously harming every economy in the world, but ours was like really fragile. So the impacts are getting worse and oil prices coming down. I don't know if you, you even read that the WTI, it just came below zero. This has a huge impact in our economy as well. So 
yeah, it has an impact, but it's not the reason why we are like this. Since oil prices went below zero, is Russia and China continuing to buy Venezuelan oil? Well, basically what's going on now is that we're not producing like nothing. So we be began exporting this oil. And what happened recently, uh, like last week, was that Iranian boats came with 1.5 million uh, barrels of oil to Venezuela. So we are not obviously sending away more oil. We now are requesting for this oil. And obviously right. those allies you're talking about, China, Russia, and Iran as well, they are now sending oil, but at very high prices. It was paid with gold. Is the oil infrastructure in Venezuela completely outdated now where you can't even satisfy your own oil needs? It's completely destroyed, Loman. As you're saying, it, you know, it's very hard when you have these refineries and when they stop to reactivate them. It's very hard. And we have, I think, six major refineries here and they're all basically stopped. And the ones that haven't stopped yet, like completely, they're working on their minimum, on their minimum. So... It's very hard to reactivate all this. I was actually interviewing a, one of the one of the syndicalists of this state oil company. So he was telling me that the situation is very bad, and not only in the refineries. I mean, like it's a, a whole process. Like from the refinery, it goes to another step of the chain, which is also stopped and destroyed. There are three, and they're not working at all. So. It's very hard, and that's why they're saying nowadays that this Iranian help will basically not do anything more than supply gasoline for three weeks Venezuelans, because all these additives they also sent on these boats are not going to be able to reactivate our industry as it used to be before. Why do you think Iran is continuing to support Venezuela? Is it to undermine the U.S., or is there other strategic reasons? I just wrote about it last week. I mean, there are many things here. We are in U.S. baggers, as they say sometimes. So we basically, that's why U.S. maybe it's very much on top of us. But we are involved in this whole like fighting among countries that we have no, I mean, like we have nothing to do with them and they're fighting between them. I mean, we're obviously in the middle in some of the cases, but also Venezuelan government has like allied uh, itself, like he has made allies on these countries because they have ideologically some things in common. So not only that, also it's like Venezuela, uh, Venezuela's regime has allowed many terrorist groups and crime organizations from all the world. This has become like their shelter. And this is now a state that is, I mean, we're handing here not only with Venezuelan's regime, but also with Russians and Iranians and Cubans. And there are many people who have interest in this country because this is a very rich country. So many people have interest on what's going on here. And that's why communists come. And that's also why all these countries with problems with the U.S. come. Everyone's here like gathering because this has become like a shelter of mafias and, and many, many weird things here. In an article you wrote, we are living in a country that is divided into two halves. We have two presidents, two judiciary courts, yeah. two parliaments, and two halves of the country. Each one believes in their president, their judiciary court, and their own parliament. Could you take us back to 2017 and the presidential elections, which led to this two-president system with Juan Guaido as interim president, tending yeah. to ICE and Maduro? 
Yeah, it's very hard to explain. And that was an interview made by the CPJ, by the way, the one you're, you're reading, where they were trying to show how was journalism here, because it's very hard to understand what's going on here. As you say, we had these presidential elections back in May 20th, 2018. And on those elections, Maduro won these elections. But it's hard to explain that he actually didn't legitimately won, because like... Opposition didn't even have a real candidate for these elections. So the thing, and these elections, it was said like Venezuela, Venezuela's regime makes fraud on elections. So not only did opposition parties didn't even go to this process, but citizens, Venezuelans as me, didn't even vote. And we are a country which normally vote. So Maduro was obviously re-elected, and that's also very hard to understand because it's like a process. In the whole process, they made like these little traps that they allowed them to win elections. So basically, it was like this parliament they put aside, this official parliament, because, you know, the parliament opposition won the majority in the parliament in elections back in 2015. And that's the whole mess we're living now with Juan Guaido and all that thing. But they want this and government couldn't, like, they couldn't face it. They couldn't handle it. So they had to make like this parallel parliament, which is the Asamblea Nacional Constituyente. And this constituent uh, parliament was the one who called for elections, for these elections in 2018. So it's hard to understand that this official thing couldn't do this. So they also moved the dates of the election, which uh, you cannot do that, and because it doesn't allow all the all the parts to make the preparation for it. So it has to do with many many things in along of the whole process that makes us and the whole country and it, well, the opposition part of the country as well. I'm telling you about it. It's two halves, and they have their own realities. And part of the international community were saying that. Maduro didn't want legitimately. So as Maduro, since Maduro didn't want legitimately, he was supposed to assume his new mandatory period on January 5, 2019. That means last January. But since the opposition didn't recognize him as a, as a legitimate elected president, Basically, what they say was that, well, we have no president, and our constitution really says in an article that when you don't have a president, you are allowed to, like, I mean, like the president of the parliament, which on that moment was Juan Guaido, can assume the presidency of the country, like an interim president, like he's in charge of the presidency until elections are made. Basically, that's what the constitution says. So they like kind of took this article and that's why Juan Guaido swarms as interim president of Venezuela. So it's very complicated. Nowadays, when that article was wrote, I we only had two parliaments, but nowadays we have three, which makes it even worse because, so the constituent uh, parliament, I mean, the, the formal, the one we elected, the Venezuelans elected is Juan Guaido's parliament. That's the parliament we voted for. Then uh, the opposition, then it divided, like the official part went to this parallel official parliament. But then this main parliament, there was a group of corrupt opposition congressmen who also made their own parliament. And that's what's going on now a day here in Minnesota. This week, as we, oh, as we speak, 
Venezuelans, I mean, a guy sworn in as president of the parliament while, while Juan Guaido was fighting in front of the parliament said Juan Guaido didn't get in. It's very hard to understand. But now we have like many parallel institutions and government, when the regime, when they don't win an election in a, in a state, they send like a protector. They call it the protector. So if they don't have the, the mayor or the governor, for example, if it's not a, an official, a guy who is Chavista, they put aside a guy who is called a protector. And he basically is the one who does everything. So it's hard to understand. <laughs> After Juan Guaido was sworn in as interim president, he went on two international tours to America, Canada, Europe, all these democratic states around the world that have recognized him as the uh, official president of Venezuela. How fundamental has this been in getting support for the icing of Maduro and, and Guaido coming into power? Well, there are many things, as you say. Obviously, we kind of have like, it's weird because Juan Guaido's government is the one who's recognized, as you say, by, by all these democratic nations. There are about 50, 50 countries in the world, 50, 60, who are recognizing Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. And they are all these democratic countries of the world. But Juan Guaido has no power inside. Basically, Juan Guaido cannot do anything here. So there's frustration because they traced this route that uh, initially it seemed to be like a very simple route, like, well, we need to seize the, what they say, the usurpation of the power, as they call uh, Maduro, after, uh, what they say, la usurpación del poder, as they say Maduro is doing now. And they say afterwards, a period of transition and then there, there would be elections. When they said this route back in January 2019, that was the moment when Juan Guaido, as you said, sworn in as president, it was also something of ex like expectations because people were expecting this to happen very fast. And it didn't happen, obviously, because it's not easy to get rid of this regime as well. And not even it's even less easy when you have the support of these guys as Russia and Iran and all this organized crime around the world. So... They were expecting this to be easy, but they don't have the support of the military. And the support of the military in countries like ours is fundamental. I mean, like, if you don't have the support of the military, you're not going to be able to, to get rid of this. I mean, the, and the military is not going to treason in Maduro. That's not going to happen here. We've had years of them also being like, they've had their benefits out of this as well. So before, like being a military, as, as well as in the rest of the world, like being a military here in Venezuela was something important. I mean, like maybe people like you and like me would, would wanted to be a military and serve for their country. But now it has all been so destroyed and the whole institution has been destroyed. Like before, if you were a military, you, your, your rising inside the institution depended on how good you made it like your grades and things, you know? And now it's just like fingering like you, 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 you become a colonel, you become whatever, and that's it. So sanctions, obviously, they they make things harder for them. That's what I think has happened with the, has happened with the U.S. sanctions, for example, because now it's not that, that easy for them to make the things they were, they were doing before because U.S. is watching and because U.S. has targeted that all the things they were doing and they're like getting like this it's amazing how they always find a way to make their business and you see like all this oil thing uh, all these oil sanctions that that 
that we were having, well, they began doing like these swaps on the sea and they were still sending oil away. So it's very hard. If you don't have like the intern power, it's very hard. And people, most people, they don't understand this. And that's why they get frustrated with uh, Guaido not being able to achieve what he said he would achieve by now. If the Venezuelan military will never side with Juan Guaido, do you think it's impossible for him to ever come to power in Venezuela unless there is a possible military intervention by the U.S.? Honestly, I don't think military are going to take their support from Maduro, our own military. And I'm not sure if the U.S. is ever going to make this invasion. I'm obviously not like I don't support that kind of things as well either, like as a citizen. But I don't think that's ever going to happen either. I'm I'm honestly not. I don't have that much hope. It has to fall by its own weight. Is there any other way you could envision the fall of the Maduro regime if Juan Guaido can't do it without the military? Honestly, I don't know. If they see they've already taken out everything they can and they just say, let's leave these people alone. I don't know. Something like they get illuminated by, I don't know. I'm honestly not, I don't, I can't yeah. see any, any way out of it now. Can you tell us what it's like being a political journalist in Venezuela. Protests happening in the streets. There's so many killings. You've experienced some awful things. You spoke about how when you go out onto the streets, you don't know if you should wear your press ID or not, because then you can become a, a target. Could you talk to us about that and the fear as well, especially in regard to the colectivos, the left-wing paramilitary units supporting Maduro and yes. all the threats that you face as a journalist in, in Venezuela? Yes, yes, of course, Loman. Well, this government, this regime, since Hugo Chavez, has made the journalists the enemy. They made sure for people to believe this. I mean, like, since Chavez, I, I, I recall him seeing, watching him on TV saying this many, many times. So the journalist is the enemy because the people, their supporters who are very passionate and like radicals they obviously believe we are responsible for many things we are obviously not i mean like they don't understand many things of our profession that makes us do some things like for example our ethic codes here in venezuela which was made way before uh, this chavez maduro thing said that we should like confront on and combat any regime that goes against democracy. I mean, like, it's in our DNA. I mean, it's something journalists do around the whole world. They're obviously always against the system, and especially when the system is doing all these wrong things against freedom and all the things. So it's been hard. I mean, like, as you say, uh, we have many demonstrations, like public demonstrations, and these protests, they all, all, almost always go wrong. Like, there are confrontations between the demonstrators and the military and the police people. So you have to go with your vest and with your helmet and, and a mask and all those things because you can get even harmed like intentionally by anyone. I, th- I mean, you don't have any idea because even demonstrators in these situations get mad at you because of things. That, I mean, like, no, you're recording whatever and 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 the police is also mad at you because you you exist and just because you're there and the colectivo then who which is the most dangerous of all hates you just because they are more ideologically identified with the regime because colectivos are it's 
some of them is like some really serious ideological thing they have there with the regime. So it's obviously dangerous. As you say, we even try, and it's been very common uh, since Chavez era, we, don't, we never wear the, the press ID. We never wear that. Because if you work for a media that's identified with the opposition, then you are a target for the others. If you work for a media that's identified with the, with the government, then you became a target for the others. And people here, I mean, it's been 20 years of this mess. So people is tired. People, as I, as I told you, is frustrated and they have rage and, and they act on different way that you, you cannot imagine how they're acting in this situation. So it's hard, obviously, and it's even harder to keep the track of everything that's going on because you, you never rest. I mean, like this is a country where I was telling my, my bosses last week that you always have like this feeling that you don't know what news is trying to block the one that we recently had. Like, for example, we had like this, allegedly they were trying to get into some boats through the coast from Colombia, this whole head-on operation. We had that, and then immediately we have some riot in a prison, and there was like this slum in Caracas where a guy who, who is in control of the, of the slum was in all this gunshot uh, throughout many days. So... You never understand what's the real situation because it's one thing after the other and the other and the other and the other. And, and it's very hard to keep the track of it. And it's very hard to know what's really going on here. So what's the real thing that all these things might be trying to, to just block to, for people not to see, for example. So it's very hard. This is a, a very hard country. I know we, obviously with all the situation, like journalists, practices, the ones that we academically uh, learn and the ones that are uh, learned in countries as yours and in the whole world, probably we're not making all those practices as we should because this whole situation has also forced us to, to assume roles we shouldn't be assuming. I don't know if you get me. So it's very hard. This is a whole messy situation and very complex, as I told you. But, well, I mean, we are uh, big news for the whole world. And, and as a journalist, I mean, when, when I studied journalism or when I wanted to be a journalist, I dreamt about going to Africa or to these places where, where, where you can find all these stories. And now I'm living here, like war scenarios. Obviously, we don't have a war, but it's kind of a war. It's like our own war uh, with all these differences and well. Basically, I'm making my dream in my own country. So it's kind of bittersweet if you see it. It's like very hard to make things here. But uh, well, it's also, I mean, I'm doing my job. So Is there times where civil war looks imminent? I, I heard material called on the collectivos that now is the time of resistance and to fight back. How worrying are statements like that by Maduro? I think it's an imminent risk. As you say, I mean, like in any moment, it could happen. It's going to be something. And this is what experts believe. Uh, this civil war will, will come when one collectivo confronts the other, not because of control of territory, which they're doing every moment. No, they're going to get into a fight because of 
resources. For example, gasoline. It's a risk nowadays when we don't have gasoline and you need gasoline to make all these operations, including the illegal ones, the ones that they are making, you need gasoline for it. So if you don't have it, maybe there's gonna come a moment when there's this fight between them for the control of this oil, gasoline, for example. That's what experts believe. But I mean, we've had obviously very sad situations in which Venezuelans confront each other, which is very, very sad. And, and as I told you, the country is divided. There's lots of resentment. And the government has made sure to make this because they, they created this resentment between social classes, which is very sad because they said, you are poor because that guy who's rich made whatever. They, they just made up any, any reason, anything. So there's lots of resentment. This is a society and which then you see like opposition is also opposition or, or high class people has also some things against all these other guys, but because we were taken to this, all this mess, all this resentment and all this hate between Venezuelans. But I think like a real war, civil war will come when all these criminal bands, uh, because not only colectivos, we have like these trains, which are, they call them trenes. Ui, I'm sorry, my kid is here. No I'm sorry. We have like these trains, which they also confront and mean in, in small colectivos as well, that they also fight between each other. So. This is a very complex country, as I told you. I'm sorry, we're running out of time now, but there's two other major things I wanted to ask you about. Firstly, Venezuela, Maduro's regime operating as a, as a narco-terrorist state organization and working with distant FARC rebels. And secondly, could you also talk to us about how difficult is it now for Venezuelans to, to flee Venezuela and are Colombia's borders still open and do you see that changing? In the future yes um as for the narco-terrorism thing it's something that's been said like since forever like they've always said this it's something that we haven't as journalists i mean as the whole journalist group venezuelan group it hasn't been proved with real like strong proofs and i think that's why no one has come with the with the real proof that this Diosdado Cabello, for example, just to name one, he is a narco-terrorist. No one can, can assure that with proofs in hand because they made everything so in a smart way because they're smart. People think they're not smart, but this thing with smart people who also has recommendation from smartest people from other countries as Russia, for example. People who's been experts in these things like for many, many years or Cuba, for example, or other countries. So, uh, but well, we have like this uh, U.S. investigation where they now claim their heads. They put like this price on their heads, $15 million, for example, for Maduro's head and also other 15 identified uh, members of its regime who, who are involved in this narco-terrorism. And well, you, you might expect the U.S. made a, a, real, a real investigation of this. For example, so I cannot say it uh, as a journalist or either as a Venezuelan that it is like that. But well, now I know the U.S. says this. They might have the reasons. I'm very sure that they have all the proofs in their hands just to say all these kinds of things. So as for the narcoterrorism, that's what what I can tell you. And I don't remember the second question you asked. It was about the refugee crisis. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're living in a very weird situation because... 
about 4 million Venezuelans, some experts say even more, uh, about 5 million, they just left the country. Before, uh, in the beginning, this was like, uh, they were living, especially like the richest people, they were living on planes. But then we began to see this situation that probably you've seen the pictures in which um, people began going, walking through the borders and not only to Colombia or Brazil, which are which our nearest, our borders, I mean, like the ones, the open ones and the ones that have life, as you might say, but they were going from Venezuela, walking to Colombia and up until Peru. They crossed many countries walking. They called them the walkers. So after having this with the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic situation, but what began happening was that these people who had fled, the poor who had fled walking, is coming all the way back. So now we're having all these Venezuelans who left, we're having them back in Venezuela, and they're in some sort of, they call them here like concentration camps in the border, in, especially in Táchira State, which is like uh, the main bridge that connects Colombia and Venezuela. They keep them there in quarantine. So, because they're coming from, even from Peru. So, I mean, they're walking from other countries all the way through these whole countries just to get to Caracas, to Venezuela. So they keep them in this border and there's this whole sanitary situation with them there, but they're coming back. Our people is coming back. And the thing is that I read recently, even Colombia, for the first time in five years, registered the lowest number of Venezuelans living there, which is huge because Colombia is the one that is paying for all this uh, situation. I mean, the migration, they have like a very big amount of people there and that had bring some troubles also there. But I mean, now they're coming back. I don't know if they're going to stay. Is that partially due to Colombia making it more difficult for them to enter the country? And especially now during the COVID pandemic where, where countries are, are closing their borders and, and including all over Latin America? No, no, it's not because of that. It's because... Since they are poor people, they are working, as I told you when we began the interview, day by day. They get paid by day of work. And for example, uh, one guy sells coffee in the street, for example. One Venezuelan sells coffee in the streets of Valledupar in Colombia, for example. So now with the COVID, that guy cannot do that. So he cannot pay, he cannot afford his rent. And they're kicking him out of his apartment. So he's living in the streets. And just to give like that, he just says, no, I'm coming back. Okay. And that's why this has really been a thing of the coronavirus. I don't think they were coming back if the coronavirus wasn't here. Okay. In Brazil, you're going to be way better than here. I mean, we don't even have water, Loman. You know water, when you go to a restroom and you just flush or open that, we don't have that. Like my, where I live, and it's a, it's a good place where I live in Caracas, we haven't had water in the whole quarantine. I mean, we, we, we've had like two days recently that last week were the only two days where we had water the whole time. But the rest of the time, we had to pay for very expensive trucks, cistern trucks. I don't know if you've seen them because normally you shouldn't because you have pipelines which send water to every house as, is, as it should. But we have like these big trucks who bring water to your house. And then you, you just feel like a big tank and then you just uh, rationalize the use of it. Uh, like my neighbors, I live in a building and we say, we will only have water 15 minutes. Take a look at this, 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the night. 
So we live like that always. We don't have oil, we don't have gasoline, we don't have even natural gas, which is used by, by some people to cook. I mean, we don't have electricity here, normal for even in Caracas. I'm talking to you from Caracas. And it's normal for me not to have electricity like two or three times per week, like for about three hours. And imagine what that, that, that does to your work. I mean, like also like internet connection. I don't know if you've read, read this. We are the worst than any country in the world in internet connection. So, and even internet access. So it's very hard to live here. Now television, the biggest, as you might say, like pay-per-view, tel satellite television, they had like this fight with Maduro and now they left. So some people even stay without television. Can you imagine that? And, and being locked by the quarantine. So locked with no water, with no electricity, with no gas, you cannot cook even, and you cannot drink water, you cannot go to a bathroom. It's horrible. Well, but, Andrena, yeah. keep up all your amazing work. And thank you mm -hmm. so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you very much, Roman. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it and maybe give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.